the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with Jonathan Catherman. He's the author of Guiding the Next Generation, Rethinking How Teens Become Confident and Capable Adults. And yes, moms and dads who have been holed up in your household for weeks with your teens or tweens, that they will become adults. Jonathan Catherman will join us later this hour. We'll also wind our way down through some of the news headlines and the latest on the fight against COVID-19. First, a look at some of the headlines. President Trump on Monday said at a press conference that he might get involved in the public crisis playing out in the Navy after an aircraft carrier commander was ousted after raising the alarm about the coronavirus outbreak on board his ship. It leaked in a letter. Acting Navy Secretary Thomas Modley He appeared to worsen the situation when he uh, gave a surprise speech to soldiers on the USS Theodore Roosevelt and called the ousted captain too naive or too stupid to be commanding officer of a ship like this. Reuters reported, Modley later issued an apology to the Navy and Crozier said, uh, and Crozier rather, and said, let me be clear, I do not think Captain Brett Crozier is naive or stupid. I think and always believed him to be the opposite. We pick our carrier commanding officers with great care. Captain Crozier is smart and passionate, In quote. Well, Modley said he wanted to apologize for any confusion this uh, choice of words may have caused. The president took a press conference that he, uh, uh, he is uh, good at settling arguments Uh, Trump said Cozier should have resisted sending the letter, but he did not want to destroy somebody for having a bad day. Several Democrats in Congress are calling for Modley to be fired following the speech in which he admonished the ship's former commander for expressing concerns over the coronavirus in a strongly worded letter that was leaked to the media. Now, that part wasn't his fault, but that's always a possibility. And you must in the military follow the chain of command. Well, in other related developments, acting Navy secretary had no discussions with the White House prior to firing Crozier, according to a report. And 155 sailors on that USS Theodore Roosevelt have tested positive for coronavirus, 42 percent of all Navy infections. Well, the U.S. coronavirus deaths have now surpassed 10,000. L.A. is bracing itself for more deaths and asking residents not to go out shopping at all. The United States passed a grim milestone on Monday as the death toll from the coronavirus surpassed 10,300 and confirmed infections of COVID-19 exceeded 347,000. On Sunday, Surgeon General Jerome Adams, he warned this week would be the hardest and the saddest time for most American lives. According to a tally by St. John, uh, by Johns Hopkins University, as of Monday afternoon, there had been 3,048 deaths in the city of New York alone, the hardest hit U.S. area, followed by 293 deaths in Wayne, Michigan, 208 uh, deaths in King County, Washington, and uh, the number of lives lost in New York State climbed past 4,700. Meanwhile, with coronavirus-related deaths spiking in Los Angeles County and a critical um, week ahead, health officials advised residents on Monday to stay at home and avoid shopping to limit the spread of the virus. Officials confirmed 420 new coronavirus cases in the county and 15 deaths on Monday. 
Over 6,360 cases and 147 deaths have been reported since the outbreak started for data from Johns Hopkins. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court on Monday afternoon shot down a last-minute election eve push by the state's governor to suspend in-person voting for the state's scheduled Tuesday primary due to health concerns amid the coronavirus. The state's highest court, which controls, uh, is controlled by conservatives, ruled 4-2 to that Governor Tony Evers, a Democrat, lacked the authority to move the election on his own. Hours later, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a federal district court judge's uh, ruling, allowing people voting by absentee ballots an extra week to return their ballots. The ruling by the high court broke along ideological lines, but the five appointed by Republicans overruling the four appointed by Democrats. Evers previously had resisted delaying the election, saying he didn't have the authority to move the date. But on Monday, he signed an executive order that would have pushed in-person voting for the April 7th contest to June the 9th. Well, with the ruling of the courts, Wisconsin is asking hundreds of thousands of voters to ignore stay-at-home orders to participate in the presidential primary election, and the Badger State will become a test case for dozens of states trying to manage an election year in the midst of a pandemic. Of course, that voting is now taking place in the state of Wisconsin. It'll be interesting to see what the voter turnout numbers end up being. Well, U.S. medical leaders are seeing a glimmer of hope Uh, Task Force member Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks uh, now believe the United States can come well below the estimated death tolls, which is very encouraging. Uh, Robert Redford, the director of the Centers for Disease Control, said, if we just social distance, we will see this virus and this outbreak basically decline, decline, decline. And I think that's what you're seeing. Another story explained governors in some of the nation's hotspots said Monday that they see glimmers of hope there in their respective areas and the latest data on the pandemic. Evidence, the rigid social distancing measures states have uh, mandated are helping slow the spread of the virus. Um, And from Guy uh, Benson, he says Americans are rising to the occasion by making extraordinary sacrifices in the name of successful mitigation was a major theme from Pence, Fauci and Burks toward the end of today's briefing. Uh, The White House has detailed the response to the outbreak, including since last Sunday, cargo planes have delivered nearly 300 million gloves, almost 8 million masks and 3 million gowns. Jim Gregory, he says, uh, looking at the hydroxychloroquine controversy, notes that because every issue in public life uh, seems to come to Trump and what people feel about him, many anti-Trump voices want to focus on the evidence that it doesn't work and could be potentially dangerous if misused. And many pro-Trump voices, voices rather, want to focus on the evidence that it does work. So the professionals and the uh, medical uh, staff must make those decisions for us. Uh, And meanwhile, the 2005 George Bush, rather in 2005, George Bush warned us, we need to prepare for a pandemic ahead of time. Of course, they deemed him a fool at the time as well. Well, doctors and nurses are praying on hospital rooftops. That is an ongoing effort. When you have a few extra minutes at work, you take the time to go to the helipad and pray, says one uh, Angela Gleaves, a nurse from a hospital, Vanderbilt Health in Tennessee, writing on Facebook, sharing several photos of photos rather of herself and some colleagues on the hospital roof. We prayed over the staff and our unit as well as employees. We also prayed over the patients and their families during this time. We also prayed uh, for all of our colleagues around the world taking care of patients. It felt good to do this with some of my amazing co-workers. Um, we could feel God's presence in the wind. Know that you were all covered in prayer, she wrote on her Facebook page. Uh, it even caught the attention of the vice president who had earlier in this pandemic urged all of us to pray.
Well, John Bolton is calling for the World Health Organization's director general to resign. In a, a tweet, he says the World Health Organization is an accomplice to China's massive cover-up of COVID-19. That's why I support efforts by Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz pushing for resignation of WHO director general. He misled the world by blindly trusting a communist regime's intent on deception. And Prime Minister, British Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson continues his stay in ICU. President Trump said we are very saddened to hear that he was taken into intensive care this afternoon. Uh, Americans are all praying for his recovery. He has been a really good friend. He's been really something very special. Franklin Graham said, join me in praying for Prime Minister Boris Johnson, the many who are ill and suffering from this vicious virus and all the healthcare workers tending to the sick during these difficult days. The Wall Street Journal writes that we tend to forget during crises that our political leaders are also human beings. That's no uh, argument against vigorous policy disagreements. They sign up for the job expecting to duck those slings and arrows. But instead of a reminder that they too can be physically vulnerable, especially so when the enemy the world is fighting is an invisible killer. And in Chicago, half of the COVID-19 cases are African-American, while they make up only 30% of the population. They're finding the same issues in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. In Louisiana, blacks account for 70% of the coronavirus deaths as well. It's not altogether clear why that is the case. And America's top mask maker got burned in 2009, so they're not going to get into the 24-7 production again. The story explains the reason he isn't switching over to 24-7 production and increasing his efforts now. He did that during the H1N1 pandemic in 2009, and he got burned. In order to protect his business and his workers, he's doing things differently this time around. During that pandemic, he increased production, hired more employees, and went to three shifts a day. Then the bottom fell out after the pandemic ended. He was stuck paying unemployment for all those people and had to reduce production. Not this time. L.A. County officials are saying don't even grocery shop, just have them delivered, they say, so at least one extra person can touch them. Well, Wisconsin is voting today as the court overruled the governor. The New York Times story blames the Republicans. And uh, before we take our break, one other uh, item. Some Asian Americans are upset with Andrew Yang over an op-ed to help stop anti-Asian racism. He suggested we need to step up, help our neighbors, donate gear, vote, wear red, white, and blue, volunteer, fund aid organizations, and do everything in our power to accelerate the end of this crisis. We should so show support without a shadow of a doubt that we are Americans who will do our part for our country in this time of need. He's taught uh, anti or I should say these Asian Americans believe they are American and have no um, obligation to demonstrate that they are somehow super Americans. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some headlines. Later this hour, we'll talk with Jonathan Catherman, author of Guiding the Next Generation, Rethinking How Teens Become Confident and Capable Adults. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we're going to talk with Jonathan Catherman. His book is titled Guiding the Next Generation, Rethinking How Teens Become Confident and Capable Adults. The book is published by Revell. And by the way, did I mention that James Blend is producing and engineering today's program? Clark Hilton is engineer number two as well. So I want to acknowledge the fellows who are doing their jobs remotely as I'm doing mine. Well, a baby has died of extreme premature birth due to her mother having coronavirus. It's interesting to see uh, the mainstream media treating this as a baby, what she is uh, precisely, depending on context. They 
are unwilling to do that. Some Asian Americans are upset with Andrew Yang. I think I may have mentioned that earlier. There's also a shutdown that, uh, or the shutdown, has led to cleaner air and water. Environmentalists fret the good times will soon come to an end. It's interesting to see, for example, in Venice, how much clearer the water is, how clearer the air is in Los Angeles and New York as a consequence of our uh, sheltering in place. Taking a look at this day in history, 1798, the Mississippi Territory is created by an act of Congress with uh, uh, Natchez as the capital. 1862, Union forces led by General Ulysses S. Grant defeat the Confederates at the Battle of Shiloh in Tennessee. 1927, the image and voice of Commerce Secretary Herbert Hoover are transmitted live from Washington to New York in the first successful long-distance demonstration of television. On this day in history, 1954, President Dwight Delano Roosevelt, actually it's Dwight Eisenhower, (laughs) he holds a news conference in which he speaks of the importance of containing the spread of communism in Indochina, saying you have a row of dominoes set up, you knock over the first one, and what will happen to the last one is certainly that it will go over very quickly, end quote. This would become known as the domino theory, although Eisenhower did not use that term. On this day in history, 1959, a referendum in Oklahoma repeals the state's ban on alcoholic beverages. And in 1962, nearly 1,200 Cuban exiles tried in Cuba for their roles in the failed Bay of Pigs invasion are convicted of treason. 1966, the U.S. Navy recovers a hydrogen bomb that the U.S. Air Force lost in the Mediterranean Sea off Spain following a B-52 crash. In the year 1978, President Jimmy Carter announces he is deferring the development of the neutron bomb, a high-radiation weapon. 1983, space shuttle astronauts Story Musgrave and Don Peterson go on the first U.S. spacewalk in almost a decade as they work in the open cargo bay of the Challenger for nearly four hours. And 1994, Civil War erupts in Rwanda. It was really a... uh, Genocide, a day after a mysterious plane crash killed the presidents of Rwanda and Burundi. In the months that followed, hundreds of thousands of minority Tutsi and Hutu moderates would be slaughtered by Hutu extremists. Well, in an interview, the president, or rather Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin says the president is looking at how to reopen parts of the U.S. economy as the coronavirus pandemic continues to force an unprecedented shutdown of businesses throughout the country. Mnuchin's uh, comments on Tuesday came as the U.S. equity markets soared for a second straight day as the outbreak showed further signs of slowing down in so-called hotspots. Still, the U.S. surpassed 11,000 coronavirus-related deaths, according to the most recent data from John Hopkins University. In addition, New York State recorded 731 new coronavirus deaths. Governor Andrew Cuomo announced on Tuesday, marking the biggest one-day jump in the outbreak. Well, top trade advisor Peter Navarro warned in stark terms about how deadly and economically devastating the coronavirus outbreak could be weeks before it became a full-blown pandemic, internal White House memo show. And British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was given oxygen overnight but didn't require a ventilator, according to a senior cabinet minister, as the coronavirus-stricken head of government continues treatment in an intensive care unit at a London hospital. And for the first time since the pandemic began, mainland China reported on Tuesday no new coronavirus deaths and a drop in new cases of COVID-19. These developments come one day before Wuhan, the city in central China, where the outbreak began, is set to lift its lockdown. Still, President Trump suggested Tuesday that he might consider cutting funding for the World Health Organization over its handling of the coronavirus crisis 
an alleged role in helping China downplay the severity of the outbreak. Meanwhile, the situation in France became more dire as the country reported its highest coronavirus death tally in a 24-hour period since the start of the outbreak. On Monday, France reported 833 more deaths, and the country's uh, health minister warned the pandemic has not yet reached its peak there. In Japan, coronavirus cases are also surging, prompting the Prime Minister uh, Shinze uh, Abe to declare a month-long state of emergency. And finally, in a 45-second video, U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Jerome Adams shows Americans how to make a facial covering using an old T-shirt and two rubber bands. In several other developments, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper directed Acting Navy uh, Secretary Thomas Modley to apologize to the sailors of the USS Theodore Roosevelt on Monday after Modley tore into the ship's now-ousted captain, Brett Cozier, over his leaked plea for help for the coronavirus-ridden ship, a senior U.S. official says. In an interview with the Associated Press, the Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti said that COVID-19 infections, if they soar in the city, he's considering requiring people to stay in their neighborhoods to prevent individuals from traveling long distances for shopping or exercise. And a new report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention notes that pediatric cases on coronavirus in the U.S. are rare but largely mild compared to adults. can be thankful for that. And Facebook announced it would start to ask some of its U.S.-based users about their health in an effort to build a heat map and give researchers more information about self-reported COVID-19 patients. And America Together, a a group of transportation security administration officers in Wisconsin, have launched a voluntary effort to provide free lunch for fellow airport workers whose uh, hours and thus paychecks have been cut during the global pandemic. President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden, who is his political opponent for the presidential race in 2020, November, spoke over the phone Monday afternoon about the coronavirus in a rare conversation between the two likely nominees for president in November. Well, during the White House Coronavirus Task Force press briefing in the evening, the president confirmed that he spoke to Biden over the phone earlier in the day. We had a really wonderful, warm conversation, a very nice conversation, the president said. A source familiar with the call said they spoke about the response to COVID-19 pandemic. We talked about pretty much what everyone is talking about. This is what they uh, want to talk about, the president said. He gave me his point of view, and I fully understood that. The president said the friendly conversation lasted about 15 minutes. It was really good. But the president wouldn't divulge specifics, telling reporters that he and Biden agreed we weren't going to talk about what we said and maintain that it was a very good talk. I enjoyed it. I hope he enjoyed it as well, the president went on to say. Well, Biden's deputy campaign manager and communications director also confirmed the call took place. Vice President Biden and President Trump had a good call, uh, Bedgefield said in a statement. The vice president shared several suggestions for actions the administration can take now to address the ongoing pandemic and expressed his appreciation for the spirit of the American people in meeting the challenges facing the nation. So the infamous call did actually take place and apparently was quite cordial. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Jonathan Catherman. He's the author of Guiding the Next Generation, Rethinking How Teens Become Confident and Capable Adults, the book published by Ravel. Looking forward to talking with Jonathan Catherman. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. And as promised, I've got a great interview with my next guest, Jonathan Catherman. Now, as the gap between generations widens, and it always does, and the shared experiences dwindle, 
adults, they find it increasingly difficult to connect with and remain relevant to today's young people. So what values are you able to pass on to that generation to help them become the next great generation? And how do we communicate those values effectively? Well, that's the subject of a new book written by my next guest. In Guiding the Next Generation, Rethinking How Teens Become Confident and Capable Adults, Jonathan Catherman, he's a sociologist and international best-selling author, he presents specific life challenges that teens and young adults will need to overcome and thrive and build something greater than the previous generation. Now, he provides relevant examples, practical steps with each challenge, and we're going to talk about that with him today. Well, Jonathan Catherman is the author of the international best-selling book, The Manual to Manhood. He co-authored the bestseller, The Manual to Middle School, with his sons, Reed and Cole, and The Girl's Guide to Conquering Life and The Girl's Guide to Conquering Middle School with his wife, Erica. An award-winning cultural strategist and leading education trainer specializing in the character and leadership development of youth, he speaks worldwide about the principles and strengths that empower greatness in children, teens, and young adults. He and his family live in North Carolina, where they uh, founded and direct the 1M Mentoring Foundation, and we are delighted with all of this social distancing to have you with us here today. Jonathan Catherman, welcome. It is so nice to be here. Isn't technology great? We are like we're sitting next to each other, but we're so (laughs) far away. It really is incredible. Before we get started, I have to ask you, how are you and your family doing? You know, we are doing well. Uh, We've gotten a lot of gardening done in the last week or two. (laughs) Well, there you go. I wish you'd come over and get some of mine done, but that's a whole other other subject. (laughs) You begin your book, Guiding the Next Great Generation, uh, bringing us back to 1997 with a campaign that was launched by Apple, their Think Different ad campaign. Uh, in which they make the point that people that are thought to be maybe just a little bit out there now were heralded as geniuses sometime later. And then uh, because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do it. Why do you begin by encouraging us to think different? Well, because if we have a mindset that doesn't shift with the needs of today, then we get caught up in the thoughts and, and, and the demands of yesterday. Yes, those travel forward, but if we aren't aware of and willing to think a little different, if we don't have, if we have a fixed mindset, then we're not able to change and meet the needs of young people today. And I don't mind being called one of the crazy ones who thinks he's <laughs> going to put a round peg in a square hole or, or try to invent something new. And, and in all reality is, is what we're looking at with young people today isn't so much new, it's just a new way of thinking about how do we share mm-hmm. with them what is truly valuable. Now, that's been the challenge of every generation, where the adults look back or down at the teenagers, at tween, tweens and young adults, and there's, there seems to be a difficulty understanding one another. Is there something unique with the generation that's coming up now and adults that is uh, different than what we've seen in the past? Absolutely, there is. Um, I'll, have your listeners think back to the first time someone told them, when I was your age. Right, and, and then it was a comparison story about when I was your age, we used to walk uphill both ways in the school in the snow, you know, or something that seemed outrageous. Mm-hmm. Yet the that experience today, when we tell young people when I was your age, is really a history lesson, first and relevant, maybe. And the reason for that is because cultural norms shift. In fact, as a sociologist, we can go back and measure the distance of a shift of a cultural norm between the silent gen, the boomers, and Gen X. And then if we take a look at how consistent that movement is, we can find a pattern. 
Well, if we compare that pattern of how the cultural norm, things that we are we believe to be normal in our culture today, has changed so dramatically with the millennials and the Gen Z's coming of age, we see the cultural norm has shifted what would usually take three or four generations to experience. So yes, things are much different today than when we were their age and technology being the major driving force. At the same time, there are values that remain the same throughout the ages. I think our tendency is to look at changes that are occurring in younger generations and emphasize the elements of it that are so different and remote from our own experience that we look down on them and fail to see the potential that young people have moving forward and the opportunity we have for influence. Is that generally um, how generations look to one another as uh, the march of time moves forward and older generations lament (laughs) the younger? Well, that's been going on forever. I mean, whether Mm -hmm. we look back at at what uh, Plato or Socrates said about the next generation and how they're failing, or we take a look at the lyrics of music or predictions of uh, future workforce capabilities. That's been the case marching throughout time, that the older generation looks down on the younger generation. But what we're seeing today is we now see the younger generation more as a threat the older generation does. And there's a reason for that. It's because we're unprepared to know how to deal with them. When we're unprepared, any demand feels like a threat. But when we're prepared, life's demands feel like challenges, and our brains love challenges. Our brains hate threats. We thrive in challenges. We survive threats. So my calling in guiding the next great generation book is to help prepare parents and teachers, grandparents, mentors, how to work with young people today in a way that helps both we as the adult and the young people to be better prepared to take on the demands of life, see them as challenges, and then perform well. So, yes, we've had the same looking down on over the generations, but we don't have to. It doesn't have to be based out of a fear of their failure or our lack of connecting. When we can prepare, take on the challenge, they will become the next great generation. In Guiding the Next Great Generation, you offer four challenges that you believe every person needs to be prepared for. What are those challenges? Sure. Challenge one is we need to build bridges between the generations. And we can talk about why that space is so wide and the challenge it is to to bridge the gap because we cannot close the gap between the generations, but we can bridge the distance. Challenge number two is we need to We need to, and we need to teach the next great generation to practice stewardship before leadership. That's challenge two. Challenge three is transform raw talents into valued strengths. And challenge four is to live with purpose. I know one of the things that um, we wonder about is in the first challenge that you offer is um, that we need to uh, have shared experiences or and build bridges because uh, in order to have those shared experiences, what prevents us from having that um, experience that today? I, I think our first response might be, well, it's technology that's keeping us apart, but is it as simple as just put your phone down and we're going to have shared experiences or what do we need to do to tackle that first challenge? Sure. Well, the big part of, of building a bridge in between two sides that are far apart from one another is we've got to learn that we're building from both sides. So it's not just about putting your phone down and look at me in the eye. It's about, look, I'm moving towards you, which means I have to have empathy and interest in what it is you're interested in. And from the other side, that would be young people, they're looking in our direction.
action, thinking, and acting in the same way. So the very first thing we need to do is we need to come together in a way that we recognize we're moving towards one another and towards each other's interests. The second thing is we've got to do it in a way that's going to last. So it's not just a temporary um, uh, feel-good experience. It's something that we can take with us into the future that will stand the test of time. And we also need to celebrate when we are meeting in the middle and when we're, when we're uh, making that distance connected. The example I use in the book is the building of the Golden Gate Bridge. Now, when it opened in 1937, Martin, Martin County to the north and San Francisco to the south, previous to that was seen to be too far of a distance to bridge. But exactly as I just described, they didn't build in one direction, like San Francisco building all the way to Martin County, just pointing their finger saying they're not doing enough to get to us. Instead, both sides build equally and, and with the intention of meeting in the middle using materials that they agreed upon will last the test of time. And when they met in the middle, they celebrated and then they opened the bridge and hundreds of thousands of people celebrated with them. When we're building towards the next generation, they're building towards us. We've got to practice those same principles, build from both sides, build to last and build to celebrate. That's why I wrote actually two books, Mm -hmm. guiding the next great generation and becoming the next great generation. The becoming book is written for young people, same exact content, just a little different language. Guiding the next great generation is built for those adults who want to just do, as it's described, guide younger ones to see, do, and become all God created them to be. We're going to continue our conversation. We're talking with Jonathan Catherman. He's the author of several books. Today we're talking about Guiding the Next Great Generation, Rethinking How Teens Become Confident and Capable Adults. The book is published by Ravel, and we'll be back in just a few moments. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Jonathan Catherman, author of Guiding the Next Great Generation, Rethinking How Teens Become Confident and Capable Adults. Now, as I mentioned, you offer four challenges that every person needs to be prepared for. I, as an adult, I think, uh, I think you know, once you get past the handbook that says, um, as an adult, you tell people to turn that down, put your phone down, and get off the grass, and you move toward <laughs> <laughs> building a relationship with young people, we often wonder, as you pointed out, you need to start from both ends. It, do young people have an incentive to, to build toward uh, adults and are we responsible for generating that interest or in helping to convince them that we we should value each other and benefit from one another you know and all of the young people i've worked with in the last say 10 years which is tens of thousands of teenagers i see an authentic interest in relationships and that includes relationships with the older generation particularly when there is something of value that can be shared. And I don't mean that they're just receiving, they also want to give. So if there's a two-way street in that relationship of giving and receiving and sharing, then yes, there is an interest in that next generation to have time spent with, learn experiences from, and they also want to be able to teach us what they're interested in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. The other challenge that you write about is practicing stewardship before leadership. Explain what you mean by that. Okay. In previous generations, so then I'll go again, go back to the silent gen, boomers, and gen X. We experienced most leadership from a two-layered model where we had leaders over followers. Well, that model has been 
mostly rejected by millennials. Those would be the generation born between 1983 and the year 2000. And Generation Z, which would be the generation born after the year 2000, they've rejected the leaders over followers model, and they are looking for a model that includes stewardship. So it's now a three-layer model, membership, stewardship, then leadership. So when I present in the book to practice stewardship before leadership, for years we've been telling young people, you're a leader, you can be a leader, try to be a leader, but really we haven't given them the tools they need to succeed through stewardship. So the value of stewardship, the responsible management, supervision, and protection, what's been entrusted to your care, is the, is the filter to leadership. If you are practicing management, supervision, protection, then you have no business in leadership, no, no reason to be there. So when we talk about practicing stewardship before leadership, we're trying to communicate, show that next generation that those who can be faithful with little can learn to be faithful with much, and those who have been faithful with much, much is expected of them. So mm-hmm. it's a new model that is hard for some of the older generation to accept, but really we've been, we believe in it. We just have never phrased it like that and presented it to young people in that way. You give an example of uh, stewardship versus leadership um, with McKenzie and how that played out in her life. Can you share McKenzie's story? Well, McKenzie's a remarkable young lady, and she's featured in the Becoming the Next Great Generation book. Um, she lives here in North Carolina, and she started a food bank um, that is the exact opposite of what you would think of as a food bank. Um, it looks like a corner market, an old-time grocery store. There's music playing. There's shopping carts. Um, you have an experience when you come there in a, in a place of need that helps you retain a level of dignity that you desire and also receive the services that you need. And the interesting thing about McKinsey's story is she doesn't come from a family of, of wealth, and they're just now looking for some way to be nice back to their community, which is very respectable. Instead, she came from a place of need, and when her family were in a similar situation, she said, this has got to be different. This doesn't feel right. We're very appreciative for the care people are providing for us, but could this be done different? And by changing the perspective of how you run a a, uh, food distribution for communities in need, she went from serving tens to hundreds to thousands in her community, including before uh, school and after school uh, meals, weekend backpacks, emergency needs, um, elder uh, care delivery. She is such a remarkable young woman as a teenager who has empathy overflowing from her. And and her energy level, though, is like through the roof. Watching her interact with people, like watching lightning, Um, she just sparks everywhere. But her passion and interest of others, putting their needs before her own convenience, is a remarkable example of stewardship. And in turn, people have gone to her and said, how did you do that? Can you show us? What that is now is an invitation to leadership. Her intention mm-hmm. wasn't to lead. Her intention was to steward. But by being such a great steward, she's now been invited into levels of leadership that she did not purposely pursue. You write about uh, the five factors of leadership in, in the book we're talking about, Guiding the Next Great Generation. Um, which factors do you think are missing in most of today's generations? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one because now you're asking me to cast judgment on a generation. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we're talking about practicing leadership, um, that we have to have vision, direction, protection, and succession, right? Um, that leaders 
uh, provide those those contexts to people. I think that the, the one of the areas that that our emerging generation um, struggles with is the concept of uh, protection. Not how do they protect others, but how will they be protected? So vision they have a clear mental picture of preferred future, direction, an understandable course to take in pursuit of that vision. They they believe they've got that one nailed, but when it comes down to the rubber meeting the road, that's where they look to us and help us with that process. But the protection, the act of preventing harm uh, or suffering or injury, they, they seek that from us. They want to provide that. I believe that's the one that they question most. So if you're an adult in a role of influence in young people's life, when they see that, that you've got their back, not under any circumstance, it's not like you, you would, you, you know, you throw a caution to the wind, but when they believe you are there to protect them, they can act more effectively with that vision direction, learn how to protect, and then also the succession, the plan of passing on value one person to another. They're tuned in tight to that model. And um, if we can guide them in the process, I believe that they will do even better than us when they come into their own in the not too near future. Yeah, that's so encouraging to hear you say that. Um, we're all familiar with American Idol and America's Got Talent, the phrase, you know, you can do anything. It doesn't matter if you can sing or not. <laughs> you know, you can do anything you want to do. Your ch- third challenge is uh, transform raw talents into valued strengths. Uh, that seems so important to me because the self-esteem is being so built up, but I'm not sure there's a, 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 any direction. And what do I do with what I'm good at or would like to be good at? Talk a bit about transforming raw talents into valued strengths and why that's important. You couldn't have said it better because we've said it, unfortunately, far too many times. And we've told young people that they're good at anything and everything. And the truth of the matter is they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, sometimes they're terrible, but we don't want to hurt their fragile feelings. That's our perspective. But the truth is the students I work with would rather hear, you know what? You're not that great at that, which is okay. If you're passionate about it, keep going for it. But you know what you're really good at? I see this area of talent in your life. And we can transform and develop that into a strength if we follow this model. The problem is, as, as the older generation, we adults, we misunderstand what the word talent is. And often we have communicated that to young people that mm. talent equals professional. And that's not the case. Here's a really good example, and I'm going to use you as my guinea pig in this. Do you know a young person who is really good at something? I do, yes. Okay, who are they and what are they really good at? Um, Well, she's my niece and she's a musician. Okay, perfect. What instrument or, or does she play? Vocal. Okay, so would you say that your niece is a talented singer? Yes. Okay, I would say no. Now, before you jump through the, the line here and, and say, how could you say that about my niece? That's my niece. And, and the same thing for all of your listeners, because some of your listeners say, my grandson is a talented football player. Um, my son is a, or my daughter is a, is a talented uh, painter. Your, your daughter is a talented artist who, if she sings well, has to train that voice. Right? And if you have a, a son that's a talented football player. No, he's not. He's a talented athlete who is trained in the sport of football. And if your daughter can paint, she's an artist who's trained in the totally different type of art than singing. She is using paints. 
So there's a different model we need to adapt. The talent is the way you think, feel, or behave that can be positively applied, but now we have to apply training. That's a process in which we're taught the skills needed to perform a task. And, and following training, we've got to put in the time. That's commitment to practice and patience. So we have talent, training, and timing. And the, and the kind of the key that holds it all together is the, the stewardship of treasures. So talent, training, timing, and treasures. And that's, that's how we do we take care of our relationships, our reputation, our finances, and the opportunities that we've been given. When we have the com- combination of talent, the way you think, feel, or behave well, training, the skills you need to perform a task, timing, that practice and patience, and stewardship of treasure, now you have a strength. So go back to your niece. If, um, if, she is, if, if she's singing somewhere and, and a, a, a producer walks up and says, you have an amazing voice, I'd like you to come play bass guitar in a band. She go, why would I play bass guitar if I've got a great voice? Because her strength is not bass guitar. Her strength is her voice. And the same thing if your grandson's going to get a, a scholarship to play on a football team at your favorite university. If he's a linebacker, but they're recruiting a kicker, your grandson's not going to get the recruiter or the scholarship call. So we have to see that talent transforms into strength, but it's strength that we are valued for when it comes to performances like on the job or in a group or in a performance like your uh, niece does when she sings. Mm, That's so good. I I was going to say that. I just didn't want you to look bad. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you're not wrong, though, because we as adults, our habit is to say talent is and then we we it's essentially when we say, oh, you're such a talented singer. When we then watch America's Got Talent or on one of the other talent shows or we hear people talk about talent, we equate that talent goes to become the pro. And, yeah, it does, but really it's, it's who, what's the strength value that you bring to the organization. Absolutely. Uh, we we uh, arranged to have you with us for two segments. Could you stay one more? Absolutely. We're at the top of the hour. We've got news and traffic coming up, but I want to continue my conversation with Jonathan Katherman, so stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, and I have asked my guest, Jonathan Katherman, to remain with us through this third segment um, because the book is so good and what he has to say is uh, so important. Jonathan Katherman is the author of the international best-selling book, The Manual to Manhood. He co-authored the bestseller, The Manual to Middle School with his sons, Reed and Cole, and The Girl's Guide to Conquering Life and The Girl's Guide to Conquering Middle School with his wife, Erica. He's an award-winning cultural strategist, leading education trainer, specializing in the character and leadership development of youth. He speaks worldwide about the principles and strengths that empower greatness in children, teens, and young adults. He and his family live in North Carolina, where they are dutifully sheltering in place. Now, we're continuing the conversation we began last hour, but I didn't want to uh, finish before we talked a bit about the fourth challenge that you present in the book, Guiding the Next Great Generation, Rethinking How Teens Become Confident and Capable Adults. Your fourth challenge is to live with purpose. And I think the longing of every adult heart is to convey that value to young people, to live with purpose. We may struggle with it in our own lives as adults, but we all recognize Mm. the value of really grasping that lesson and incorporating it into our lifestyle. Talk about that fourth challenge, living with purpose. 
So I think that it's fascinating when I meet someone who has purpose, they know why they get out of bed, put two feet on the floor and go through this life with design. These people live different than those who are wondering why they're wandering. So to live with purpose, to share this value with the next generation, with our grandchildren, with our children, and maybe even use this process that I write about in both books to guide ourselves really helps fulfill what I believe our spirit was designed for. So there are four values that I share about living with purpose. And the first is, what's your vision? When I mean vision, it's like the clear mental picture of your preferred future, your, your close your eyes and imagine it, that feeling you have when you're standing on your tiptoes to see over the horizon, or you're bending your head to see if maybe you can peek around a corner where you see it clearly, you believe in your mind, but not necessarily yet with your eyes. When people have vision, they move. Where there is a lack of vision, the people will perish. So I ask readers, where do you see yourself? What, what's the vision you have for your desirable future? You are a one of one creation, a remarkable combination that, that is knit together in, in, in your mother's womb. So that means there's no accident in your being here. So don't miss the reason why. Where are you going with this? And, and some people, they, they, they have bogged down in the context of vision because they throw the word can't into the mix. Uh, I can't do that. or That can't happen. Or, well, I didn't ask you to give me the, the, the absolutes. I asked you, where is it do you want to go? So vision is where do you want to go into your desirable future if you can't see it in your mind, you probably won't see it with your eyes one day. So let's at least begin to think about the vision. Secondly is what's your mission? Mission defines your why. So whereas vision defines your where, mission defines your why. What's the driving force why you do something? And some people will say, I do it because I love my family. In fact, um, I've met many an adult parent who says the mission of why they do life has changed since before they had kids. I now do things for the love of my, my spouse and the love of my children, right? That's changed before they had kids, before they were married. Missions can change. Um, I personally get out of bed every day to put two feet on the floor to help lead a generation to discover and become all they were created to be. That's what I love to do, starting in my own home and then extending out from there. So mission defines your why. It's a driving reason why you do what you do. And then goals define your what. They are what helps you accomplish your, your mission and what helps you accomplish your vision. Here's the thing about living with purpose. When we come to goals, people often, this is where they fall short. We forget that a goal is a from where you are now to where you want to be in the future in a specific duration of time in a way that we can measure progress. So we just, people say, well, here's a goal. I want to lose weight. Well, then is a pound enough? Well, no, no, no. I meant I wanted to lose 10 pounds. Okay, well, that's more specific. Goals need to be specific. Or someone will say, I want to save money, like a, like a dollar. No, 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 like a thousand dollars. Okay, well, that's more specific. So when we are teaching young people to create specific goals that they can measure from where they are now to where they want to be, and then they also get accountable, it really changes the equation for them because they can measure their progress relative to their vision to accomplishing their vision. When we have vision, mission, and goals lined up, we tend to say, wow, I have some purpose now. I can see why this is and why I'm living as, and this is why I put two feet on the floor each day. 
Oh, just just excellent. Once again, we're talking about the book Guiding the Next Great Generation. And I love the fact that you use the word great. We think of our great our grandparents and our great grandparents, the greatest generation and the sacrifices they made, the hardships they endured. And we can't imagine unless previous or, or future generations face similar hardships, how can they carve out for themselves greatness? But you provide uh, here examples and uh, opportunities and motivation to move in that same direction. So I love that word in the title. The subtitle is Rethinking How Teens Become Confident and Capable. Now, this is a book for adults to help guide the next generation. How do you see this book best being applied by adults as they're attempting to uh, bridge that gap uh, with uh, young people and communicate these very important truths? Sure. The best way to apply it is personally. We can never ask somebody to do something we wouldn't be willing to do ourselves. So as grandparents and parents and mentors and pastors and teachers read through guiding the next great generation, the first question they need to be asking themselves is, am I living like this? Mm. And, and if that's the case, then I have something to share because I, w- I don't have anything to share if I don't have anything to give. So live it first and then you can give it. And, and in giving it, you literally can give that influence, the person you have some influence over, the young person, becoming the next great generation. Because it's the same book, just a different language. So I wrote for adults in guiding, and I wrote for youth in becoming. And, uh, and I think it's critical that we recognize that they are becoming something. There are 20 million more members of Generation Z than their Gen X parents. And just in the next 10 years, that same generation, Gen Z, the coming of age generation, they're going to represent all 75% of the workforce. So if we don't act now, train a child up in the way they should go, and even when they grow old, they will not depart from it. If we don't train them up well now, how will they know where to go? How Mm -hmm. will they know what to do? So this is a great responsibility we have. We have the influence. Now is the time to do things in a way that sets them up for, may our ceiling be their floor, sets them up to become so much better than us. And, uh, and it's a great privilege, I think, as parents to be in this role. Um, I don't know a great parent out there doesn't want their child to have a better life than their own. Mm-hmm. So how do we go about doing that? Yeah, well, we can start by reading, Guiding the Next Great Generation, Rethinking How Teens Become Confident and Capable Adults. Really excellent work, and I so appreciate your taking the time to talk with us here today. Thank you. I appreciate your your listeners taking on the challenge, because when we are prepared, good performance follows. Absolutely. The book is published by Ravel and available in bookstores. You need to pick this and the other version up as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll pick up where we left off earlier in the program, bringing you up to date on some of the developments with COVID-19 and uh, some good news as well. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Wisconsin primary polls are open, long lines formed amid the concerns over the coronavirus and exposure of those engaging. And voter turnout, well, at this point, it remains something of a mystery. Polls opened and long lines uh, formed in urban areas in Wisconsin as the state becomes the first in the nation to hold an in-person primary during the height of the coronavirus pandemic. Well, voting got underway today, hours after a fierce political battle between state Republican leaders and Democratic Governor Tony Evers, who uh, twice attempted to postpone in-person voting and extend the ability to cast ballots by mail. 
Well, the governor's Monday executive order following a an urgent warning by mayors from Wisconsin's largest city that hundreds of thousands of citizens at risk by requiring them to vote at the polls while this ugly pandemic spread drew instant pushback from GOP-controlled state legislature and was overturned on the eve of the primary by the Republican-dominated state Supreme Court. Now, the partisan fight over the election which is an in, uh, initial skirmish for the brewing larger national showdown over the voting rights, extended all the way to Washington. That's Washington, D.C., where the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday struck down a federal district court's ruling allowing a week-long extension to return absentee ballots. Now, that was Monday night. The ruling by the high court broke along ideological lines with the five justices appointed by Republicans winning over the four appointed by Democrats. Now, that shouldn't be relevant when you're talking about the Supreme Court, but I'll just leave it at that. With a state under a state-at-home order, thousands of poll workers indicated they wouldn't show up on Tuesday, forcing many cities and towns to cut the number of polling stations. Milwaukee was down to just five polling sites from the original 180. Catch that, five sites from the original 180. Lines could be uh, be long in many of the state cities, which will make social distancing extremely difficult to maintain. But I saw images earlier in the day, people standing dutifully six feet apart from one another. Reporters at polling locations in urban and suburban areas tweeted pictures of these long lines forming as voting got underway. The National Guard stepped in to provide some assistance, distributing hand sanitizers and other supplies to polling stations across the state. The state's election commission urged voters to keep your face-to-face interactions brief with both poll workers and other voters. We want to limit the risk for everyone in the process on Election Day. And the Election Commission noted that curbside voting options are available for those who are ill and need to vote. Because of poll worker shortages, your poll place may have changed due to consolidation. So finding where to vote could have been a challenge as well. The top two Republicans in the state, House Speaker Robin Voss and Senate Majority Leader Scott Fitzgerald, emphasized on Monday night that the safety and health of our citizens have always been our highest concern. But they added that citizens should be able to exercise their right to vote at the polls on Election Day should they choose to do so. But Democratic Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, uh, firing back on Tuesday, tweeted, Good morning and welcome to, well, I won't uh, repeat because it would not be appropriate what she repeated about the show. Uh, Today's episode has been produced by the Supreme Court and directed by the incomparable Speaker and Senate Majority Leader duo, referring to Um, the House Speaker and Majority Leader in their legislature. Hours later, the governor tweeted that although he remains deeply concerned about the public health implications of voting in person today, I am overwhelmed by the bravery, resistance, uh, resilience, and heroism of those who are defending our democracy by showing up to vote, working the polls, and reporting on this election. On the ballot in Tuesday's election, the Democratic presidential primary between clear frontrunner Joe Biden and Senator Bernie Sanders, Biden, uh, Biden rather, was the projected front runner in that race. Biden has held a clear lead going into the contest. The chorus of calls for Sanders to end his White House bid and back Biden will only grow louder if Sanders uh, suffers another defeat there, a state that the senator easily won over eventual nominee Hillary Clinton back in 2016. So the Wisconsin primary has moved forward. Senate Democrats uh, on Tuesday unveiled plans to create a giant new fund to boost the pay of healthcare staff, first responders, and essential workers, and made clear they'll demand their hazard pay proposal in any fourth round of coronavirus spending, which, yes, they're talking about now. Remember, not all heroes wear capes, Senator Chuck Schumer said. 
Boy, that was profound. Some wear masks, some wear scrubs. Well, these Americans are the true heroes of this pandemic, and we need to make sure they're taken care of. They are there for us. We must be there for them. Well, the hazard pay plan comes as Senate Republicans want Democrats to help pass more help for small businesses. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said Tuesday, just days after the latest $2.2 trillion stimulus plan, known as the CARES Act, was passed, that it's already clear that Small Business Paycheck Protection Program needs more funding. The program gives loans to small businesses that can be converted to grants if employees are retained. But it is quickly becoming clear that Congress will need to provide more funding or this critical program may run dry. Mitch McConnell wants bipartisan action to supply more funding as early as Thursday. Senator Marco Rubio said Congress needs to approve at least $200 billion to $250 billion more in funds for small businesses. But Schumer, Chuck Schumer, the Democrat, signal Democrats would like to get the hazard pay bill in exchange in any fourth round of funding. He also said funding for states to expand mail-in voting is a top priority as well. We believe that a HEROES um, fund should be part of the next phase of congressional response to COVID-19. No proposal will be complete without addressing the needs of our essential workers by giving them hazard pay, a pandemic premium payment. So taxpayer dollars just being um, spent right and left as if there are no consequences uh, to that action. It may, in fact, be necessary. It may be um, important to do at this time, whether or not it's prudent, I suppose, will become more important in the light of day at some point in the future when we're looking back on this pandemic and looking at the um, debt and deficit that the nation has accrued because of careless spending from the past. Well, Neil Patel um, points out that the trillion-dollar bailout may change our politics forever. I think before it's all said and done, trillions of dollars in bailout. As a member of Congress, uh, as members of Congress debate the terms of the trillion-dollar-plus coronavirus relief package uh, for businesses and individuals, they would do well to remember our recent history. Now, he wrote that earlier before they were passed, but he makes some important points. Most people in professional Washington hate the populist era we are going through. The populist period exists because Americans already feel like their elected officials are more responsive to large corporate interests than to the individuals who elected them. This played out big time after the Wall Street bailouts fueled the Tea Party on the right and Occupy Wall Street on the left. People on the left and right agree that some government assistance is needed to avoid an economic catastrophe. On the individual level, many people with little savings have already lost jobs. Many more will. The best policy is likely just direct payments from the government to target it at quick, as quickly rather as possible to those most in need. It's going to cost a ton and comes with a huge downside down the road, but it's also hard to argue that we don't need it. That's actually the easy part. On the corporate side, things get more complicated. People see empty airports, empty restaurants, closed down businesses. They know many industries are suffering. People also don't want to throw our economy into a crisis. They will support a bailout. But if they later learn that the corporate world got anything that looks like a sweetheart deal out of this crisis, the political retribution will be overwhelming. Go ask the many members of Congress who lost seats in the wake of the financial crisis bailout. That was before this populist era even started. Right this minute, there are teams of lobbyists trying to get all they can for their industry clients. It's their job. They're good at it. They understand the complicated issues more than anybody else, and they know the members of Congress and their staffs. Sitting across the table will be the members of Congress, or more likely their staffs, who are supposed to represent the American taxpayers during the ongoing negotiations. 
They share the same worldview. Together, they will define the terms of the bailout, and it will likely be so complicated that it may take weeks or even months for the rest of us to know exactly what they did. Too many taxpayers feel like their elected officials are not looking out for their interests first as, uh, at moments like these. The deals often come out looking too sweet for politically connected companies. If that happens, we'll be um, saying hello to our first socialist president sometime down the road. There are also substantial economic reasons for Congress to responsibly structure coronavirus relief. We enter this crisis already having a huge debt problem on our hands. There's a strong policy case to be made that our exploding debt is the greatest long-term challenge our country faces. We are most likely burdening our coming generations with a weaker country in, in a way no prior American generation ever has. And although we need relief now, we must structure that relief in a way that minimizes the long-term hit to our country's finances. Well, he goes on from there, but I don't have time to complete it. But this trillion-dollar bailout, these trillion-dollar bailouts, may change our politics forever. Only time will tell, and we certainly will be watching following the story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll continue to wind our way through what's happening during this COVID-19 pandemic and our lockdown. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to bring you an update what's going on with regard to COVID-19 in the state of Oregon. Data shows that most Oregonians are complying with the stay-at-home order, and that really has helped. COVID-19 continues to spread in the state and in southwest Washington, but things are looking up. Uh, Cases of COVID-19, a new strain of the coronavirus, started popping up here in the U.S. in January. On the 28th of February, the first case in Oregon was announced. Well, Oregon now has had 29 deaths, 1,132 cases, 21,801 tests. Of uh, Among those 21,801 tests, 20,669 have proven negative. In Washington state, there have been 372 deaths, 8,384 cases, 87,904 tests, and 79,518 negative tests. So again, that gives some perspective. The vast majority of people being tested do not have the virus. In the United States, the number has now reached 11,008 deaths with 368,533 cases, the latest numbers and counting. And in the world, 76,419 deaths with um, uh, over a million cases now being reported. Modeling uh, shows um, that Oregon's surge of coronavirus patients could come sooner than previously anticipated, but also be less deadly. The new projections by the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington estimate that Oregon's peak could come in about two weeks. So we still have two weeks before that peak. Cell phone location data show most Oregonians are staying home. In Oregon, mobility, or the range of people travel each day, has dropped 91% so far this year compared to all of 2019, according to research uh, data intelligence firm is reporting. And Washington students and parents have shifted their focus as Governor Jay Inslee has canceled in-person classes for the rest of the school year. Now, many expect that that will be the case in the state of Oregon as well, but that has not yet been uh, announced. Well, the Oregon Health Authority on Monday reported two new deaths due to the novel coronavirus as confirmed cases rose to 1,132. The agency said a 93-year-old Washington County man and a 70-year-old Marion County woman were the latest patients to succumb to the illness, bringing the pandemic's death toll statewide to 30. 
Both had underlying medical conditions, according to health officials. Additionally, residents in Washington County, 12, Marion County, 11, Multnomah, 10, Clackamas, 6, Jackson, 6, Josephine County, 3, Clackam- or rather Klamath County, 3, Benton, 2, Columbia, 2, Lane, 2, Polk, 2, Deschutes, Douglas, and Lynn, 1, as well as Umatilla counties, test positive for the virus in the last 24 hours. Well, during that time, nearly 1,200 new people received coronavirus test results, a 30% drop from the previous day's 1,700, according to figures. Well, in the last week, Oregon averaged 75 new COVID-19 cases a day as the number of test results reached nearly 9,000, about the same number of test results as the week prior when the daily average of new cases was about 60. Well, there are now... um, Known cases uh, linked to 29 of Oregon's 36 counties. And of the state's known cases, 519 people, or 46%, are under the age of 50. Um, Another 197, or 17%, are over 70. Now, that's rather interesting. 46% are under 50. 17% are over 70. So we know that the more vulnerable cases are the elderly, and they're Um, describing that as 60 and over, although we don't tend to think of 60 as elderly, but certainly those with underlying conditions. Yet um, 46% of the cases in the state of Oregon are age 50 and under. At least 404 of the state's COVID-19 patients, or 36%, have been hospitalized at some point during their illness, according to the Oregon Health Authority, and 82 of them are currently on ventilators. State health officials have reported 27 previous COVID-19 deaths in Oregon, including residents from Benton, Clackamas, Lane, Lynn, Marion, excuse me, Multnomah, Washington, and Yamhill counties. Their ages were 59 to 93. The Oregon Department of Veterans Affairs separately announced the death of a resident at the Edward Allworth Veterans Home in Lebanon on Friday night who had tested positive for the virus. As of Monday, that person whose age was not disclosed had not been added to the state's um, count of coronavirus deaths. So to give you some perspective on how things are going in Oregon, at least uh, in part in Washington as well. Again, Oregon's coronavirus peak is seen in about two weeks, avoiding the worst case scenario. Um, We're nearing that peak now, the novel virus. It's yet more evidence that uh, by following the governor's social distancing restrictions, Oregonians have helped the state escape the worst of the global pandemic as long as people continue to stay home, at least through the next two weeks, and then wait for guidance. Well, the new forecast from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation shows that Oregon's hospital system is capable of handling coronavirus patients, but it still predicts 171 Oregonians will die before the 27th of May. It projects a peak on April 20th with about five deaths because of uncertainties inherent uh, in the modeling. The peak could see uh, uh, as many as 10 in a day, and potentially more, between uh, 145 and 209 total, could die. To date, there have been 30 deaths in the state of Oregon. And again, these projections, they are not necessarily reliable, but they do offer some um, projections as to what we... But again, it could be far less if we are uh, vigilant in staying in place. Two homeless people have tested positive for COVID-19 in Multnomah County, bringing the virus to one of the most vulnerable populations in Oregon. Confirmed the case on Tuesday, but didn't immediately provide details about when the results were reported. Salem reported Oregon's first case uh, in a homeless person on the 26th of March, according to the Salem Reporter. The housing status of 
because officials worry that people who live in harsh conditions could be more likely to die from the virus. People with little to no income, no place to cook, or also more likely to be in large gathered spaces to get food and other service at where the infected person was living. But officials have also worried that the virus could move through the homeless shelters very quickly. Now, Multnomah County has opened nearly 400 extra shelter beds and community centers, and the Oregon Convention Center is allowing social distancing. Uh, outreach workers have uh, distributed hygiene kits, and the city of Portland has installed hand-washing stations around the city. The coronavirus questions abound in the homeless camps. Think about it. If you're not in a home, if you're not watching television, listening to radio, you don't have a way to do that with any regularity. You may have little knowledge of or understanding of the situation as it currently exists. Multnomah County has at least 4,000 cars on the streets on any given night. Health officials say they're um, among the most vulnerable in a pandemic, like the most um, like the one sweeping through Oregon. A shelter for homeless people experiencing symptoms of Corona positive opened last week in the Juniper or Jupiter Hotel with 12 people. Officials said they expect to eventually use it to all 81 rooms for those who are showing symptoms but don't yet know they have well, Governor Kate Brown in March ordered the state's public schools to shutter until the 28th of April, subject to update. As COVID-19 spread across the state, as of Monday afternoon, state health officials report coronavirus 1,100 Oregonians killing 30. The Oregon Department of Education anticipates the governor's closure order likely will extend through the end of the year. And in an about face from the agency's previous guidance, advised districts across the uh, uh, learning plans um, by the 13th of this month. So you learn at home, sheltering in place. Now for families who lack internet access or don't have adequate computers or other equipment to allow all their children to connect with virtual learning opportunities, they're going to pose a particular challenge. Portland Public Schools launched its program on Monday, as did Beaverton and some other metro districts. For uh, some families whose children are uh, younger, uh, this may not be feasible if they don't have access to the Internet. Uh, there's some technical issues to work out for those who are sheltering in place and continuing education. Um, but that is what's happening, I'm certain, in Washington and began this week in the state of Oregon. I'm not sure how they're going to redeem the time, making sure that everyone has the uh, opportunity to learn, given the limitations that some households may pose. But that is our new normal, at least for now. And again, the order extends through the 28th, but it's expected by some who are in the inner circles that this could extend through the end of the academic school year. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Now, I have to tell you, one of the benefits of broadcasting from home is that as James and I are conversing between segments every once in a while his little daughter Verity will wander in and she just sang me a song that she wrote herself about dolphins in the pool and I have to admit I'm a little bit uh, twitter pated and it's hard to focus and concentrate when you're thinking about dolphins in the pool song by Verity Blend so anytime you want to let her on the show James I'm uh, I'm definitely open but back to business couple things I want to mention before our time runs out as this is our last segment This week, Fred Meyer and some other stores, grocery stores, are limiting the number of customers they're allowing in their stores at any given time. They're joining a long list of Portland area grocery stores that are making efforts to prevent overcrowding and encourage social distancing during the uh, coronavirus crisis. Now, the grocery stores have been uh, have seen long lines of shoppers stocking up on essentials and some hoarding deals. 
Many have reduced hours uh, to give their employees more time to restock shelves, to deep clean heavily trafficked parts of the store. So they're really working to take care of us. And grocers, grocers rather, have been urging customers to buy only what they need. Some are limiting purchase numbers for some of the most sought after items, such as toilet paper, facial tissue, cold and flu products and cleaning supplies. And some stores are letting customers know that they won't accept returns on overpurchased items in an effort to stop hoarding of some of these items. Now, Costco, for example, they're currently closing their warehouse at 6.30 p.m. Monday through Friday. Uh, Food for Less, the parent company Kroger, they're limiting uh, their store hours 7 to 10 to give employees more time to clean and restock. Fred Myers, um, as of yesterday, the 7th, they started limiting the number of customers allowed in the store at any given time. Uh, the parent company is Kroger. They've reduced their hours from 7 to 10, giving employees time to do what they need to do. Green Zebra Grocery, Grocery Outlet, Market of Choice, Natural Grocers, New Seasons, uh, Safeway, Target, Trader Joe's, Walmart, Whole Foods, all of them are limiting their hours to give their employees opportunities to prepare for shoppers um, by doing deep cleaning. So make note of that. And uh, some of them, if not all, are now limiting the number of customers in the store at any given time. Also, we're learning that the ultimate coronavirus mask may be your HEPA vacuum bag filter, huh? blue shop towels, and T-shirts. Now, although the federal government has recommended them, bandanas do a bad job of protecting the people wearing them from the new virus, filtering out about 19% of infectious airborne particles. So it seems like a good idea, not so much. If you want the gold standard materials for homemade masks, scour your closet for a HEPA vacuum bag. So if you have that, according to a Cambridge University, they found that vacuum bags filtered out 94% of the tiny particles, and you can make about four masks from any given HEPA bag. Uh, they also say T-shirts are another alternative. To make the masks, you'll need a vacuum bag, hot glue gun, some elastic bands, uh, pipe cleaners, sewing machine, you know, a number of things. But you can also use blue shop towels. A tea towel almost performed remarkably well are also filtering out 83%, so a tea towel can also work. But if you want to follow the recommendations that uh, at this point is not a mandate, uh, you need to cover your face when you go out. Well, if God is trying to get people's attention, a new Pew poll says he's succeeding. Turns out the coronavirus hasn't just impacted people's lives, it's led them to a growing outbreak of faith. Almost everyone agrees that the pandemic is significantly changing how they act. They don't feel comfortable in crowds. They avoid parties. They're trying to stay away from places like restaurants, which, of course, are all closed down now. But it's what Americans are doing that's getting a lot of attention. More than half, or 55 percent, say they've prayed for the virus to end. Now that shouldn't surprise us in the faith community. But this new focus on the spiritual is broader than that. People who seldom or never pray are looking to God for answers, which may mean they look to you for answers to their questions as well. The president's coronavirus task force made that one of their first priorities, bowing their heads in a public photo that led to a media, uh, media shellacking. But nonetheless, many people are encouraged by it. David Clawson, who's a, with Family Research Council's Washington Watch, says he was encouraged by it, but wasn't surprised by the numbers of people who are now turning uh, to God for answers and for hope, because what's true on a national level is also true on a personal level. In our personal lives, when we go through a crisis, whether it's the death of a loved one, an unexpected diagnosis, sudden loss of a job, whatever it is, it's really, it causes us to reevaluate what matters in life. 
And that's what a lot of Americans are doing right now. They have all this time on their hands that they didn't expect to have. They're working from home and quarantining. Sometimes they're unemployed and wondering whether or not they're going to have sufficient resource to provide for themselves and their families. Uh, They have time now to wrestle with some of these big worldview questions that you and I uh, think about quite often. What does it mean to have a relationship with Christ? Why? What's my purpose in life? What's going to happen to me when I die? And my hope is that um, they'll use this opportunity to read their Bibles like they've never done before, or their devices where they can find Bibles and devotionals and prayers and all kinds of things. So as we are socially distancing from everyone, let's make sure that we're not socially distancing from God, that we are well connected and prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have uh, to help bring comfort and peace to those who have little hope, are confused and fearful. What a tremendous opportunity we have. And of course, we're also praying for those who have been diagnosed with uh, COVID-19, for those who are treating them, for first responders, for those who are serving us at this time. Well, taking a look at tomorrow on the program, Don Evers will be my guest. He's the author of The Spiritually Vibrant Home. They might want to listen up because since we're all at home together for longer periods of time, this might be a great resource. The Spiritually Vibrant Home, The Power of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors. (laughs) That's coming up tomorrow. And then on Thursday, we'll talk with Carol Kent. She's the co-author of Staying Power, Building a Stronger Marriage When Life Sends Its Worst. Now, as you might recall, she and her husband have faced some very tragic events that left her promising son in a prison for life through a set of circumstances that it's hard to even fathom. Anyway, Carol Kent will be our guest, again, co-author of Staying Power, Building a Stronger Marriage When Life Sends Its Worst. And then uh, Friday, of course, is Good Friday, and we have a special for you on um, this Friday to prepare our hearts as we contemplate Resurrection Sunday. So that's the lineup for the rest of this week. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering. James has done his good share of engineering as well. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night, and I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.